Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 144 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing science fiction bookstores, and I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Alan Beats, founder of Borderlands Books in San Francisco. Prior to opening the store, he worked at numerous jobs, including bodyguard, firearms instructor, DJ and nightclub promoter, and motorcycle repair shop manager. In 2008, he and Borderlands Books general manager Jude Feldman were nominated for a World Fantasy Award in the category of Special Award Professional. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. And also joining us today is Cece James, co-founder of the Singularity and Company Bookstore in Brooklyn. She's also a musician, cosplayer, and hardcore Star Trek fan, and is one of the organizers of the Save the Sci-Fi crowdfunding campaign, dedicated to rescuing classic pulp novels from obscurity. So, Cece, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, and so I'd like to start out and just talk a bit about everyone's background as science fiction readers. So let's start off with Alan and have you just tell us a bit about how you got interested in reading science fiction. You know, I'm not sure I can remember the sort of seminal moment. Uh, my grandfather did some writing for fantasy and science fiction magazine, and my mother had a subscription to it. And so I remember starting off by looking at the covers and going, wow, that's so cool. And then, of course, that led to reading the contents, and then it kind of went from there. What sort of reading did, uh, writing did he do for it? Was he an author or... Uh, he wrote Mysteries uh, and was published by Ellery Queen's magazine. He wrote uh, book reviews uh, for uh, FNSF. Oh, that's, right. that's cool. And so, like, just sort of growing up, what were some of the books or, that made a big impression on you that made you feel really passionate about the genre? The first novel I remember reading was um, Have Spacesuit, Will Travel by Robert Heinlein uh, when it was serialized in fantasy and science fiction magazine. So that's that's kind of the first novel that really stands out, and uh, I've always been quite fond of Heinlein's work. Other writers that really hooked me, um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, Robert E. Howard, were all kind of early faves of mine, along with Andre Norton. Yeah, well, great. So, Cece, I, th I thought I heard you uh, murmur approvingly at uh, <laughs> Have Space. Heinlein, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a big Heinlein fan. Um, yeah, should I answer the same question? Yeah, go, yeah, go for it, go for it. <laughs> um, so I'm, um, I guess I'm unusual in the sci-fi world in that I, I came to it super late as far as sci-fi readers. Um, I think I read, I knowingly read my first sci-fi book at age 28. Um, but upon reflection, I think I was reading sci-fi all along. I think the first book that I remember reading and reading again and again and again was um, A Wrinkle in Time, which is a wonderful children's sci-fi book. A boyfriend in high school gave me Neuromancer, and for whatever reason, I read it and thought it was amazing and then never thought to pick up another Gibson book. Didn't become a fan then. Um, it was only after getting really into Star Trek um, that I met my husband, who was also into Star Trek, and then he started introducing me to his favorite books, starting with the Heinlein uh, Juvenile Classics. Um, I'm, I've just been going down his favorite list. So let's see, I got The Forever War, um, The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, The Forever War is by Joe Haldeman. 
uh, I, again, it's Heinlein. I love Friday. Um, I really enjoyed Strauss's, uh, what is it called? Saturn's Children, which is sort of like a pay into Friday. Um, I wish I knew more about like uh, Asimov and, and Clark, but I honestly haven't started uh, them in earnest yet. So I'm, I'm much more of an expert in movies and film than books, which is a terrible thing to say <laughs> as a bookstore owner and publisher. Um, but I generally only have time to read the books that I'm publishing these days. All right, great. So let's get into the bookstores now. So, so Alan, tell us about how you came to start your bookstore. I, I usually describe it to people as being a reductive process that, um, I, uh, I came to a point where I was dissatisfied with my job and I had this sort of epiphany and I realized that the same things that were making me unhappy at the job that I was working at the time had made me unhappy at many of the other jobs that I had. And the only real common denominator among all those jobs was that I was doing them. And so I realized that perhaps the problem was coming from me and not coming from my employers. And uh, I concluded that I wasn't necessarily very well suited to working for someone else. And so I probably should go start my own business and work for myself and eliminate that stress. And so then I just was thinking, okay, well, what kind of business would I want to do? I realized that I like dealing with the public and I like sort of customer service. So I want to do something dealing with the public. I kind of like helping people find things, you know, the thing that they need. And so retail seemed like a good choice. And then it was a question of, well, what do I like enough and know enough about to sell? And that took me to books. And then I settled, I would have probably opened a general interest bookstore, but um, that was the days of, you know, Borders and Barnes and Noble and trying to run a small general interest store was very difficult. And so I decided to specialize and then, you know, well, what am I going to specialize in? The books that I like the most. And that took me to science fiction, fantasy, horror, and subsequently mysteries. So, I mean, did you... Like if, if I were to start a retail business, I would have no idea where to begin. Did you have uh, a lot of knowledge or did you have a mentor or something or did you just jump into it and figure it out as you went along? I had a, a pair of mentors when it came to the sort of used book trade. Uh, two gentlemen who ran a bookshop in Palo Alto, uh, about 40 miles south of San Francisco. Uh, the shop was called No New Books. And they gave me a lot of advice about the used book side of the business, which is what I, I started off as a used only bookstore and then added new books later. So they gave me a fair amount of advice about the book trade. Um, but other than that, no, pretty much just jumped in. I mean, I had experience running businesses previously, but never a strict, uh, and exclusively retail business. And you somehow you acquired all their books to start your bookstore. Is that right? Well, not all of their books. Um, I actually acquired the books that they had triplicates and quadruplicates of because they had quite a large inventory. Um, about half of my inventory were books that I purchased from them at a very good price. The other half of my inventory were all of my books. Yeah. And so, I mean, you mentioned uh, Barnes and & Noble and sort of t talk a little bit more about competing with those big chain bookstores and just sort of what is the, what was, what's the business climate been? This was 97, I think you started, right? Sort of what, yes, was, what's, what was the business climate like kind of, I don't know, for the first decade or so that you were uh, running your, your bookstore? 
Um, I don't feel like we've ever really competed with stores like Borders and Barnes and Noble because of our specialty. You know, within a year of starting to carry new books, um, I had a far better selection and better inventory and better knowledge of the field than any Barnes and Noble or Borders in the country. So that sort of stopped them really being my competition, if that makes sense. It's like they were doing their thing and I was doing my thing. And so, Cece, do you want to jump in here? Talk a little bit about how you came to start a bookstore of your own. Um, we, we started with the Kickstarter, um, but it wasn't the Kickstarter for the store. We started with the Kickstarter for our Save the Sci-Fi project, um, where we go find books that are in awkward copyright status and then go through all the legal hoops of finding the authors or the widows or whoever's left and owns the copyright um, and then getting permission to make them as ebooks. So we alighted upon this idea. My husband is a lawyer. Um, I am not. Uh, I, we had no experience in publishing whatsoever, but we thought if, if the internet says that this is a good idea via Kickstarter, then we'll do it. We ended up making a nice chunk of money on Kickstarter uh, for that project, uh, which allowed us to buy a whole bunch of books because the way that we find our saved sci-fi candidates are, you know, you don't know the books that you don't know. So we're looking for the hidden gems, which you find by buying 10,000 books at a time and going through them and saying, oh, I've never, I've never heard of that author or I've never heard of this particular book by this author or this cover is amazing. I wonder what this is about. Um, so we had all the money from the Kickstarter. We had thousands of books filling our apartment. And uh, we just decided to open a store mostly to hold the books um, and then sell the ones that we weren't going to be making into uh, ebooks. So it just sort of, it, it felt logical at the time. Every step felt logical in its moment. But uh, if you had asked me if I would imagine I'd be doing this five years ago, this would I never would have thought. <laughs> now, when you say 10,000 books, is that figurative or, or literally 10,000 books? L literally 10,000 <laughs> books. Paperbacks are small. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so where, where, do you, where do you go out and buy 10,000 books from? Um, we actually initially got a lot of them from, if you're familiar with Storage Wars, the television show where people bid on storage lockers. Um, sight unseen, or they just open the door and you can't really see what's inside. So when people bid on storage lockers and find out that they're mostly science fiction paperback books, they usually put them up for sale for some very small amount, like a hundred bucks, please take these things away um, in rural Pennsylvania. So we scour Craigslist for those type of ads, drive five, six hours to weird storage locker place and cart away someone's uh, dismal collection of sci-fi books that they don't want. <laughs> and these are mostly mostly sort of pulp novels, right, that you're doing? Could you, like, sort of what, um, what, what criteria do you use to determine whether the book meets your, um, you know, the, your area of interest or not? Um, it's pretty much we start with, is there an ebook of it? Um... Is it an author that's already really well taken care of? Like, we're not going to reprint Asimov's or Clark's. Everybody knows and cares about them already. Um, we're pretty much looking for people no one remembers or stories that um, 
you know, they were printed once and then never again. Uh, but we also, we've, we published things, everything from a book published in 1895 to a book published in 1982. Uh, it just sort of, we have a, a big pile covering my desk of potential books and we just sort of go through them, see how difficult it's going to be um, and uh, go from there. A lot of it is convincing people to let us do it. Um, it took a whole year to convince one particular widow to allow us to make an ebook because the publishing business has been so terrible for so many decades that she was very suspicious that we'd just be taking advantage of her. And, and so what, what happened in that year to bring her around? Uh, we printed, we published 12 other books. <laughs> so she was the first person we asked. It was actually Joy Merrifield. Her husband is... No, her husband wrote The Sky is Filled with Ships. Oh, Meredith, Joy Meredith. So he's Richard C. Meredith, I think. But um, she just wanted to see that we were a legitimate business, I think, that we weren't just some weird fly-by-night, we're going to take your intellectual property and run with it kind of thing. Right, right. And so now, now Alan, as uh, you said you have this experience with used books, I'm just curious, had you heard about this Save the Sci-Fi Project? Kind of what's your take on what CC is uh, saying here? Oh, I I think that what they're doing is marvelous. Uh, I heard about it when they were doing the uh, their their original campaign to get started, and um, I think that it's great. We put it in our newsletter. We talked to our customers about it and said, you know, yes, this thing, do that. Thank you. <laughs> That's so nice. Thank no, you. one of one of the one of the tragedies in this business is that there are brilliant works out there that are in this weird, ambiguous copyright situation, which means that. You know, for most, most publishers won't do what these guys are doing because most publishers go, okay, can we get the copyright? Can we get it worked out? Nice, fast, quick, clean, and then publish the book. And so the things where the copyright's ambiguous or you can't find the copyright holder and things like that, most publishers don't want to deal with that. And so the books vanish. Yeah. And sometimes there are only a couple copies left. It's There are definitely books that when, you know, the there's going to be only one paper book copy left and someone's going to break the spine and throw it away and that'll be the last one. And no one keeps hard copies of the original manuscripts. They're, they're, it's, it's really sad how many are just simply going to disappear. So what would you say, CC, are like two or three of the best books that you've, like obscure books that no one else would have heard of that you've come across as a result of doing this project? Um, my favorite read was actually the the 1895 one it's called uh, Mr. Stranger's Sealed Packet and we heard about this book um and became intrigued mostly because it's a book that's often talked about in people's introductions to their scholarly works about sci-fi but we could not find a copy anywhere um except in the Columbia University Library but they wouldn't let us come uh, photograph it. I don't know why. They just were very covetous of it. Um, uh, but shortly after we had that disappointment, we found that book, a copy of the book in a nunnery in Virginia <laughs> who had just, for no particular reason, uploaded their library um, online, their, their personal nun library, uh, and that book happened to be in it. So we called them. We said, I don't know if you know you have this book. We'd love to come film it or photograph it. Um, 
we went down, we, my husband and I stayed in double beds, um, or separate single beds rather, cause no, no sex at the nunnery and, um, took a photograph of every single page. But the, the book is Mr. Stranger Steals packets, definitely in that vein of early sci-fi where it's like, ah, landed gentleman builds spaceship, goes to Mars, meets comely young maiden, fights natives, uh, leaves with comely young maiden she dies and then he continues on with his life that's pretty much the story but the way that it's written was was very funny and uh uh seemed to be ahead of its time so so was that the only nunnery that you've gone to in the course of your science fiction (laughs) so far yeah yeah that we had breakfast at 5 a.m and dinner was at 5 p.m it was very very stringent okay so alan how about um you know in like like CC is saying, she's gone through all these obscure books that most people would never heard of. Uh, in all your years working in a science fiction bookstore, have you come across these some real classics that that no one else has ever heard of before? Um, not really. But when when you say no one else, there's sort of uh, you know I have a friend who's a book dealer, and his sort of specialty and the thing that he personally collects is lost race fiction in manuscript form <laughs> published prior to 1900 and he has an actual collection of these books they're always specialists yeah so so the the thing is that when you when because you know we handle everything from you know two dollar used paperbacks up to you know right now we've got a, a four thousand dollar copy of uh, the outsider by hp lovecraft sitting in the case at the front of the store so we, we kind of deal with people all over the the science fiction book business. And I'm not aware of any book that is so rare, though the one that Cece was talking about is is a new one on me. I've heard of it once, but never seen a copy. Um, I don't really know of any books that are so rare that I couldn't, that I don't know someone who probably has a copy of it. Well, I mean, how about just in terms of books that would be unknown to like 99% of our listeners, say? Eh? Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> Bad Voltage by Jonathan Littell that has perhaps one of the worst covers of the 1980s and is one of the best, uh, one of the best and least known cyberpunk novels from the same period that, you know, William Gibson and Walter John Williams were writing. So what, what makes the cover so bad? Everything. <laughs> the, 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 I, I cannot in words, I cannot do the, the, I, I can't do it justice. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll encourage I have to find it's, it. yeah, people can, can Google, do Google image search, I guess. I'm sure they can find the cover. It's got a guy that looks like he walked out of a super saturated Devo video with some kind of ray gun on his wrist. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, may I ask who, who was the author again? Jonathan Littell. John, um, okay. And actually, he might be, it, that book might be a candidate for your project because Littell is actually a, as far as I understand, it was primarily a literary author and he has quite a good reputation. And he won a very, actually, he won and then declined a rather prestigious Greek literary award a few years ago. And as far as I know, Bad Voltage is the only science fiction novel he wrote. And um, we don't find copies of it very often. I think I'm looking at it now, and I think I've seen one copy of it. Um, but the cover is so good slash bad that 
those kind of covers go quickly. You know? <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, well, Alan, I mean, it sounds like you know a lot of really interesting collectors and readers and things. Um, could you just talk about the sort of community that develops around a, a dedicated science fiction bookstore like that and just, I don't know, what it means to people and who comes in and that kind of thing? Eclectic is probably the the best <laughs> way of describing it. Um, it it's a little bit difficult. Uh, people, especially given the amount of news coverage we've had in the last couple of months, um, people have asked me to sort of characterize what Borderlands customers are like, and they're like Borderlands customers. They're not, you know, they don't sort of fit into any <laughs> neat. You know, people seem to have this image of science fiction. You know, people who go to a science fiction bookshop is, you know, falling into the, you know, a few sort of categories like, you know, there's the Star Trek fans, and then there's the sort of, you know, geeky guys, always guys with glasses and and things like that. And in practice, that's not what the customers are like. I mean, we have customers that are. um you know, surgeons, we've got three customers who are uh, paramedics. We've got a half dozen customers who are cops. We've got, um, you know, high school students. We've got uh, retirees, uh, you know, guys in punk rock bands, uh, you know, guys who work for the district attorney's office. It's just sort of everybody. It's just kind of a cross-section of the people that live in any city. But they all happen to like science fiction, so they come to my shop. Well, see, see, you're you're, you're laughing here. What uh, what sort of experiences have you had with people coming into your store? Well, I, I was just laughing at myself because I think we've ended up hiring a lot of people that just walked into the store and talked at us long enough. Um, we have this sort of weird tradition of middle-aged men walking into the store spending like an hour or two finally combing over our shelves and then approaching either me or whoever is at the desk and telling them how we're doing everything wrong. Um, whether it's like the way that we organize the books or the prices or they just don't like the shelf layout. Um, but it's strange because these relationships seem antagonistic at first, but they're lovers of sci-fi, and we've actually ended up hiring two of these gentlemen. Um, one guy to price our rarer books for us, and another guy who just wanted to be at the shop on Saturdays. So we just gave him Saturdays. Um, but, I mean, we have a similarly varied group of people that come. I, it would be impossible to categorize. Uh, sci-fi fans are just so uh, diverse at this point. Um, they're the they're the ones that you expect, but then for every one that you expect, there are nine others that are a surprise. Huh. Well, so, I mean, so we said that you, you, you started out, you had this giant collection of books, and you just needed a place to put them, so you sort of started up the store. Um, tell us a little bit more about the store, just how big is it, where is it, how many employees are there, that kind of thing? I'd say it's probably maybe a, a thousand square feet. It's really not very big, um, but every single wall, it's, it's packed with books. Um, and it's in Dumbo, which is in Brooklyn, uh, very near the, the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. And it's kind of in the armpit of the Con Edison power grid, which means that there are transformers and all sorts of crazy futuristic uh, looking things directly outside our window, um, which is good, I guess, for a sci-fi bookstore, but I'm also afraid I'll get cancer <laughs> someday. Um, and I, I think we have six employees at this point. 
Um, I'm the manager. Uh, we're open Wednesday through Sunday. Um, and uh, yeah, some of our store employees also work for us uh, on the publishing side as well. So they do double duty. Yeah. And so, and you also, I mean, in addition to the books, you also have, isn't there like a suit of armor and all sorts of sci-fi <laughs> paraphernalia in there? There, There is a suit of armor. Um, the suit of armor is, is my husband's ball and chain. Um, it was a, a Christmas gift from his mother a really long time ago, and he's just been lugging it around New York. And if you're a young 20-something man in New York, you move a lot. Um, and a 500-pound suit of armor is not a pleasant thing to move up a five-floor walk-up oh. or any walk-up or just out <laughs> of a building at all, ever. But so he lives, Max is its name, and it lives in our store now. <laughs> and it is for sale if somebody wants to make an offer. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um, well, see, Alan, you mentioned just a second ago that you've had all this publicity for your store. Why don't you tell us a bit more about why have you had, all, why have you had so much publicity lately? Okay, I will try to give the sort of abbreviated thumbnail sketch. If there's anything you'd like me to expand upon, please let me know. The super short version is that San Francisco passed a ordinance in November of last year that will increase the minimum wage in San Francisco to $15 an hour by the middle of uh, 2018, um, based on our sales and income at Borderlands, and given that it is not practical to increase the price of new books, which are all, is, is a lot of our business now, new books is about 80% of our sales. And obviously, raising the price above the cover price is not something that's going to be particularly viable in these days of Amazon. Um, we would not be able to be financially viable starting the middle of this year when the second minimum wage increase hits. And so at the beginning of February, I announced that I would be closing the store by the end of March. This produced an enormous uproar because the reason that I cited for it was the minimum wage increase. And so I found myself both the, uh, uh yeah, um, <laughs> the poster child. Oh, yes. Um, the, uh, sort of, uh, conservative, uh, news. Outlets felt that I was going to be a perfect person to get to talk about how big government was destroying my independent business. Wow. They were wrong. <laughs> uh, Fox didn't. Fox actually paid to have me go down to a satellite studio and film a whole segment about this and then decided not to air it because I was not willing to be the angry small business person railing against big government screwing me over. Uh, so the sort of more left side of the political spectrum were extremely upset that I was a horrible capitalist and should die in a fire because I was refusing to pay my employees <laughs> a living wage. Uh, I should point out that my employees actually said, can you just keep paying us what you've been paying us? We won't say anything. We really don't want the store to close. And I said, no, that would be illegal. Um, and the more right side of the political spectrum felt that I was an idiot for supporting the idea of a minimum wage increase in San Francisco, despite the fact that it was costing my business, and they told me to go read Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, it was a party. Um, in the middle of February, we talked to, uh, I had a meeting with our customers, primarily just to explain what was going on, and why we were closing, and answer questions, and so forth, but I also wanted to hear their ideas about, you know, if they thought that there was some solution. Many ideas were discussed. As a result of 
the kernel of some of those ideas and discussions that I had with other customers and discussions that I had with my staff, uh, I decided to try a sponsorship model uh, wherein we would need 300 people every year by March 31st to put up $100 each. This would offset the minimum wage increase that was going to happen. And um, if that happened, we would stay open for the, the next year. So we tried that, and um, we had 300 sponsors in 42 hours, which was sort Yay. of awe-inspiring and tremendously cool. <laughs> and the sponsorships have continued to come in. We're now at over 750 sponsors. And the sponsors receive a certain set of benefits by being sponsors. That's, you know, all kind of cool stuff. Yeah, it's funny, Alan, because we actually, the idea for this panel first came about because we wanted to publicize your campaign, but then you, you did it so fast. Like, we, we couldn't even get this organized <laughs> fast enough to help you out. But, uh, you know, but it sounds like you're still signing. It sounds like you've got, what, more than twice as many people as you initially asked yeah. for? Yeah, we do. And we're still, I mean, if people want to sponsor the store, I'm not going to say, no, no, we have the maximum number for this year. Come back next year. Maybe you can get in in time. So we're, we will be accepting sponsors and sponsorships year round. And basically the extra money I'm going to be using to, um, do some infrastructure improvements at the store. Um, I'd love to be able to webcast our author events and things like that. And the rest of the money I'm putting into, uh, I'm going to be using to found a nonprofit that eventually, if things go well, uh, may be able to purchase us a building to locate the store in and kind of ensure our future. Well, that's that's really great. I mean, so if people, yeah, if people are listening to this and they do want to become one of your sponsors, how do they go about doing that? Um, the easiest and most straightforward way, because we're kind of old fashioned and this did all come up really fast. There is no sort of web form PayPal solution. Uh, you should either come to the store or call us up on the telephone and we'll get you all set up and get your credit card number and stuff like that. More information about it can be found on our website and on our blog. Uh, and can you give out your phone number? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, the phone number, uh, I can't remember the 800 number. We have one. It's on our website. The regular number is, uh, 415-824-8203. And as they say, operators are standing by. <laughs> are you the operator? <laughs> uh, today I'm not, but, uh, today it will be Carrie who will be answering the phone. Nice. So do you have any sense, Alan, for how many of the people are local and who shop in the store and how many are just science fiction fans from the broader planet who just like the idea of the store and want to support it? Yes. Um, and there's actually two other groups in there, which surprised me. There are, uh, well, one group didn't surprise me, which is that we do have customers who shop in the store who don't actually, aren't actually local. I mean, we have sort of regular customers who live in places like South Dakota. And they just happen to be in town, you know, a couple times a year. And every time they come in, we see them and get to catch up and things like that. But um, the group that really surprised me is there also were a lot of sponsors who live in San Francisco, but don't shop at the store and don't read science fiction. But they didn't want to see um, either an independent business period or, more importantly, an independent bookstore uh, close. So that was a whole so group wonderful. as well. Yeah, it was it was really I mean, this this was a very emotional and sort of tearful process, both in a positive way and in a negative way when we thought that we were closing. 
But um, yeah, most most I would say about fifty percent of the sponsors are what one would think of as you know a regular customer in the store. You know, they live in San Francisco and they come in and shop on a regular basis, and they like science fiction. And then the other fifty percent are sort of outliers of various types. From you know, we have sponsors in New Zealand, Australia, um, the Netherlands. Three of them in the Netherlands, uh, a couple dozen in uh, the UK. Um, and these are people that either are involved in the industry, uh, writers or publishers, or uh, people that we know just kind of from the larger science fiction community. Well, well, Cece, you're kind of uh, sounding really enthusiastic. Were you were you following this story? I mean, did you just did you just have any take on on this phenomenon of readers supporting a bookstore like this? I'm not surprised at all. Um... The, the weekend that we opened our store in Brooklyn, five other independent bookstores opened in Brooklyn. Um, and I think all of them but one are still open two years later. Um, there's definitely a renaissance, I feel like, um, happening for independent bookstores. Um, people just want to support. Um, we, we also, we don't have a subscription site for the store, but for our, um, our publishing business works on a subscription basis. You get a year-long subscription or a lifetime subscription. Um, but during our Kickstarter, it was uh, similarly nice that people would, a, a lot of people just opted not to have any reward at all. They just wanted to give us money, which was um, very kind and um, very and surprising and lovely. Um, people love bookstores and I'm so happy that they do. Yeah. I mean, I'll just like speaking for myself. I mean, since I am, I'm a book reviewer, I get just tons and tons of, uh, review copies. So I don't really buy a lot of books these days, but I, I still love spending time in, in bookstores and browsing. And I personally would be happy to pay to support a bookstore as a sort of a social club, uh, more so than, <laughs> than, than because it's a provider of books. Um, do you guys think that that's kind of, uh, the model going forward for for these small bookstores that to be more of a, a social space than a a book provider. Yeah, I, we do. We also do a lot of events, and um, it's nice to be a community hub. Um, and that's definitely the role that we're we're taking on more and more. I think that's true as well, and I think it's going to become more and more critical as um, more and more reading moves towards uh, ebooks because. Uh, I am sort of aberrant among booksellers in that I think ebooks are great. I would not want to give up the physical object of a book, but um, I I read a lot of manuscripts and you know review copies and things like that in an ebook format. It's so much easier than literally getting a box of type you know a typewriter box full of paper <laughs> and going page to page to page. And um, you know, living in a small San Francisco apartment. Uh, you know, not having to get rid of books because I just don't have room for them anymore. I think that's a marvelous thing about ebooks. But it is very hard to support a physical store and a staff um, if you're selling ebooks. It just doesn't, it yeah. doesn't really, it's not financially rewarding. The economics of it doesn't work out. So if there's going to be the sort of social and recommendation element and all the other things that go with a bookstore, um, and have things move more and more towards ebooks. Something's going to have to, there's going to have to be some other way of supporting that space and having that exist in sort of, you know, meat space rather than cyberspace. Uh, I mean, so Cece, I mean, Alan was just talking about being on Fox News and stuff like that, or I guess 
ultimately not being on Fox News, but being invited to be on Fox News. And I mean, <laughs> being paid to be on Fox News. Yeah, <laughs> you um, I mean, Singularity Company is certainly it's gotten a lot of mainstream media attention. I'm just curious, what's it been like for you uh, appearing in all these big venues? Um, it's we we were very lucky with our. I think we've had three Kickstarter campaigns, um, and every time we've gotten Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Cool Hunting, Wired, Slade. I, I think we're just uh, in the right space where uh, people are looking for stories like ours. Um, so whenever it pops up. Uh, I don't know how people find out about us, honestly, aside from Kickstarter, because we don't do any advertising. Um, and it's funny that the only way that I see it translate into uh, the meat space of the store is usually like two years later or six months or 12, whatever, someone will come in and be like, I think I saw an article about you. Hmm. And that's, I'm like, oh, okay, someone did read that article. And this is now finally translated into, the articles don't, I will confess, don't um, translate into booming sales. Because I think, I think there's a plateau for how many sci-fi books one is going to sell in a particular size city. And we think we've hit that plateau. Um, but people come and check out the store um, just to see it. Uh, and we're just happy to have them come and hang out. Yeah. So, Alan, what was your experience with being on TV and all this stuff? Did it uh, result in anyone coming to your store to buy books? A lot. Yeah. It actually it, it had a pretty major impact. And I think part of it was people thinking, oh, my God, they're going to close. I want to go shop because we did an enormous amount of business in February. Um, like double what we did in December levels wow. of, of business. Yeah, it was, it was huge. It broke all previous records, both. We had days where we broke all previous records for sales in a single day. And as a month, it was just, it was crazy. Um, and, but another thing that we have noticed now is that, uh, we're picking up new customers a lot. Because people have heard about the store through various news channels and all the news coverage. And, and actually, they come in and say, I didn't know you were here. And, you know, we've been here for 15 years on a relatively busy street. But people can just sort of miss you. And um, there's no good place to locally advertise a science fiction specialty bookstore. You can do it. You know, nationwide through like Locus magazine and, you know, and banner ads at like io9. But local advertising, there just isn't a place to advertise. Yeah, it's pretty much leaving flyers. That's like the most yeah, you can exactly. ever do. <laughs> yeah. Have you done that, Cece? Do you just leave flyers around? Oh or? yeah. I, I keep we have we have bookmarks and I just keep a whole a huge stack in my purse and wherever I go I just leave them. Huh. So <laughs> that's my that's my indie uh, advertising campaign. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we I interviewed Felicia Day on this show, and she said that she would leave little bookmarks on, in restrooms whenever she went to the restroom. She would leave one. I leave them thing. in restrooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> places where people can't ignore them. Pretty much, that's my favorite favorite place. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh well, well I was going to ask Cece. You mentioned that you have events at the store. I'm just curious. Could you just give people an idea of what sort of events you have there that they might, might want to check out? Um. We have all sorts of, I mean, we, 
the normal things like author signings, readings, and stuff like that. But we um, we have a, a reading series where we invite our favorite local writers to read their favorite uh, sci-fi authors or uh, from authors based on a theme. So we've had a, a Lovecraft night, we had Halloween, we had uh, Star Trek novels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, that's that's called Lust for Genre. That's been pretty popular and cool amongst the kids. <laughs> and um, But we also... We've had a, a topless book club come just rent out the space where girls just wanted to read books topless. So that's what they did. Um, they gave me 50 bucks and I sat there with my shirt on. And, um, but oh, we also do a lot of film shoots there. I wish I had something concrete that I could give you that was coming up, except Morgan Gendel, who wrote the Star Trek Next Generation Inner Light episode is coming, I think, on the 22nd to do a talk about writing sci-fi scripts. Um, but we, we start to swing back into event time when it gets warm and it's been really cold in New York. Yeah, yeah, that's for so sure. It's been slow. <laughs> uh, when you say film shoots, what sort of film shoots have you had? Uh, we've had everything from little indie films to... Um, Saturday Night Live did a digital short there. So um, whatever, if, if people want to make a movie, they just call me and I say yes, generally. Okay, wait, so if people want to watch the SNL digital short, how do they find it? Oh, it was, it was, it was before Andy Samberg left. It's pretty old. Uh, I can't remember. It's, it's one where he spells out a really long word. Um, not one of the most popular ones. It wasn't like Dick in a Box or anything. <laughs> um, but uh, let me see. I'll, I'll, I'll do some research on the internet right now and see if I can find it. Yeah, yeah. No, let us know. Um, how about while she's doing that, Alan, what, what sort of, you know, talk about events at, at Borderlands. I mean, uh, what kind of things do you guys do there? Uh, we have had people get married in the bookstore. Um Aww. <laughs> yeah, really sweet. And in fact, actually, the couple who was married in the bookstore were in the first 10 sponsors that we had. They are sponsors number seven and eight, if I remember correctly. So we do that. We host a lot of uh, the sort of get togethers and things like that. We have uh, two book clubs that meet uh, on a Monthly basis, we also host um, uh, the uh, Sword and Laser book club. Uh, I don't know if you Ooh. guys have heard of heard of that, but that's pretty cool. Um, we do meetups for the Sword and Laser group as well. Yeah, so that's that's basically the we don't we don't do a lot of super exotic events. We used to do many more ambitious things, but then I got lazy and old. We used to do a, a Dust Till Dawn ghost story reading on Halloween. Uh, and we used to do a uh, fantasy story reading on um, Midsummer Night from sundown till sunup. But eh, who wants to stay up all night long if you're not drinking? So <laughs> we kind of stopped doing those. So when the people got married, who officiated that wedding? A friend of theirs. Not okay. me. <laughs> Would not have done that. Oh, okay. I, I found the, the, the video title. Okay, no, go, go ahead, Cece. <laughs> It's called Spell It Out. You can find it on YouTube. All right, great. And I'll definitely check that out. As will I. Okay, so Cece mentioned that this is kind of like a renaissance period for 
these kinds of bookstores. I'm wondering, Alan, do you agree with that? And would you recommend, like, if is this a good time for someone who's always wanted to start their own bookstore to to jump into it? Oh, um, mm. that's a good question. I think that it is a better time now than it was when I opened. Um, borders going out of business. The probable either um, shrinking or uh, collapse of Barnes and Noble, which is something I'm actually surprised that it hasn't happened uh, sooner. But I've been kind of expecting that for the last three or four years, and I would expect that that will happen in the next five years. Um, but you know, don't hold me to that. That's leaving a space for physical bookstores that that didn't exist. Um, so I think that that's, that that makes it a good time to open a bookstore. I think that, uh, business has stabilized around ebooks temporarily. And so I think that makes it a good time to open a bookstore as well. That said, the book business has never been a very profitable one and it is very difficult. And so I think that if someone really wants to run a bookstore, now is a good time to do it. But if you don't really feel that drive, don't open a bookstore because you won't make a lot of money and you'll work very, very hard to do it. It's kind of like being a writer. Honestly. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, really, except with writing, you might hit the jackpot and, you know, turn into James Patterson or, or um, uh, you know, uh, Stephanie Meyer. Uh, running a bookstore, that's never going to happen. Winning consists of making, if, if you get to make a living, you are at the top of your game and winning as a bookseller. I, I would also add to that, that if one was going to open a bookstore, doing it, uh, with a, a theme or a, a specific genre, being, being special, I think is, uh, key. I would actually, uh, I, I agree. Absolutely. If you are opening in an urban area, if you're not opening in a, in a sort of major city or urban area, I think that it is possible to do quite well as a general interest store. If you locate yourself someplace where you are at like a hundred miles away from the nearest Barnes and Noble, there's towns where since borders closed, there is no bookstore within 75 to a hundred miles. And in a town like that, I think that you can do very well with a general interest shop. But if you're trying to operate in a city or a dense urban environment, I think you really need to have a, a specialty. The other thing that I would add, too, if there's anybody out there listening to this thinking that they want to open a bookstore, if there is any way possible, you should buy the building that you locate the store in. Do not rent. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, like my impression, Alan, I mean, it's certainly what everyone says is that Amazon is killing all the small bookstores. Could you say a bit about the role of Amazon and um, how, how do you compete with them? Or like, what is the situation looking forward for bookstores? At this point, I think that um, I think Amazon and ebooks both have have stabilized. If people are shopping in a physical bookstore, they're doing it because they want to. They're not doing it because they don't haven't heard of Amazon. They're not doing it because they've never bought anything on the internet. They're, you know, they're, they're, everyone has done that. So if someone comes into my store, they're doing it because they're choosing it rather than choosing Amazon. 
So unless I blow it and do something to make them prefer Amazon, or unless Amazon comes up with something incredible and revolutionary that's going to draw people away from my store to them, which is possible, barring those things, people who are shopping in my store are going to keep shopping in my store sort of regardless of the existence of Amazon. So what we're looking at is a slow shift as basically people age out and you know, lots of people come into my store because they like the physicality of books and they like the experience of going to the bookstore. I'm not sure that there's a lot of 15-year-olds out there who feel that way. And so as the older customers who really like the, the physical bookstore and the physical book experience, as they die and people come up that are younger who have a different relationship to bookstores, we'll see a slow drop in business. But I don't think there's any cliffs ahead. I wonder, as the 15-year-olds get older, whether or not they will begin to appreciate the physical books, or if that's just a, just a whole generational thing that it won't be important to them whatsoever, but that remains to be seen. Every once in a while we get that we get a, a child or young teenager that comes in, and I, I'm always so impressed by them. I'm just thinking now of this one kid. The kid was the sci-fi fan. The father was definitely not. And his child was probably 10 years old. He walked in and he opened the door and he was like, I love the smell of old books. <laughs> I was like, who are you, kid? I hope that there are at least a thousand more of you out there because um, they're, they're still around. You just have to cultivate them, I guess. Or maybe they're just born that way. <laughs> Oh, I, I agree. And I'll tell you, if you want to get the absolute royal red carpet treatment at Borderlands, be under 16 years old and express an interest in science fiction. <laughs> uh, you will get mobbed by, I mean, the clerk will start talking to you. I or the general manager will hear the conversation. We'll be like, wait, it's a young one. We can go convert them and we'll come out and start talking to you. And, you know, we'll, we will do anything because, you know, it, it is something that, we feel very passionate about. And the thing that's yeah. neat too is that, you know, readers like 14, 15 years old, they are so excited about it. And it's such a pleasure talking to them and, you know, recommending books to them and getting book recommendations from them. Um, it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. There's also something magical about the difference of age in a space like a bookstore. So you, uh, there aren't many arenas where a 15 year old gets to hang out with a 45 year old or 50 year old or even 28 year old. Um, and the, the combination of ages makes for a really magical experience for everybody involved. Yeah. All right, cool. I and mean, one thing I wanted to ask Ellen is I always wondered this for this, the people you were talking about earlier who live a hundred miles from the nearest bookstore and they're going to order their books online. Is there a site that they should order them from other than Amazon if they don't like Amazon's business practices? Yes, there certainly is. Um, there are a couple of possibilities. Um, one that I actually am pretty fond of, because, you know, I do, I, I do kind of like recycling and reusing. Uh, don't buy it new from Amazon, buy it used. Um, there are two excellent sites. I think that the best uh, used book uh, site is biblio.com. They don't have as large a selection as their nearest competitor, but they also have the, in my experience, the most professional booksellers, um, you know, rather than people sort of doing it as a hobby out of their living room. 
So that's biblio.com. Their competitor is uh, Abe Books. That's A-B-E dot com. And they're both wonderful. But if you want to buy, uh, if you want to buy new books, um, uh, IndieBound is a excellent site that is run and sponsored by the American Booksellers Association. That's a great site. And, um, that, uh, you know, the proceeds there go to independent bookstores. All right, great. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So I think just to wrap things up, I'm going to have both you guys just say again, the name of the store, where people can find it online, where they can find it in meat space, etc. Um, so Cece, could we just, just tell people how, again, how to find your store? Sure. Uh, Singularity and Co. is located at 18 Bridge Street in Dumbo, Brooklyn, New York. And we can also be located online at singularity.co or savethesci-fi.com. All right, great. And Alan? We are located at 866 Valencia Street in San Francisco. Uh, that's the Mission District of San Francisco, uh, California. And in cyberspace, we are at B-O-R-D-E-R-L-A-N-D-S hyphen books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. So borderlands-books.com. And um, that's where we is. <laughs> All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Alan Beats and CeCe James. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Alan Beats and CeCe James for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including New Infinity and Jesse Colton. Jesse writes, One of the best podcasts in all of geekdom. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is unquestionably one of the best portals to intelligent, thought-provoking, and incredibly entertaining discussions and interviews about everything geeky, from science fiction to fantasy to classic literature and beyond. The panels are equally entertaining, and the guests are both insightful and hilarious. Keep up the great job, guys. And viewers, drop by their Patreon page to throw them a dollar or two. This is such a worthy enterprise that really deserves the support of geeks everywhere. So big thanks again to Jesse Colton for that great review. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon, including Jim Hoffman, Ed Powell, Jan Lars, Beth Morgan, and Jason Etheridge. That brings our total up to $203.89 per episode. And remember that if we hit $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of this year. So if you're looking forward to another year or more of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a very special thank you to a listener who wishes to remain anonymous, who just made a very generous $500 contribution to the show. So big thanks again to everyone who contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.
Thank you for listening.